Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. I'm reading from uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 13. If I speak in the tongues of men, of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. And where there is, where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. I have really, really, really loved this uh, sermon series. It's been challenging to do, but it's also been really, really helpful. And it's been really fruitful to have conversations with you all. And today, this is our final one. And we slated this one to be a conversation around human sexuality. Also about how our third way posture creates relationship with our LGBTQ community. I have thought really long and hard about how to approach this conversation this morning. I've thought um, through different options, and where I've landed on how to approach this meaningful conversation is to just tell my personal journey with it. And uh, that's a challenge, and it's also been really meaningful for me. That being the case, I'd like to make a couple disclaimers and make a request. Disclaimer number one, when I talk about this subject, it tugs my heartstrings. I know I will cry today because when I wrote this in a public coffee shop, I cried. (laughs) Embarrassingly so. And I hate crying when I'm preaching a sermon because it feels like I'm being emotionally manipulative of people, kind of like a This Is Us episode, you know? And I don't want to be that, but I'm going to do it so you will see me cry Then you'll see me being really angry about the tears, and then you'll see both of those emotions at the same time. I hope it's entertaining to you. Disclaimer number two, I feel some anxiety about sharing this morning. I feel a little nervous about it because I know this is weighty and this is polarizing, and we have a tendency to slap labels on people because of different positions and stances, and I just want you to know that I feel a little anxiety. I'm comforted knowing that I'm not the most nervous person in this room, though. That's my wife, Jen. She's right there. 
Would you like to stand? There you go. There you go. Disclaimer number three. The reason why I haven't shared my journey around this conversation is because I think that it's really, uh, can be seen as when the pastor shares their perspective, that means the rest of the church has to agree on that. I'm sharing my journey from my own experiences. I'm not trying to share this to convince anyone to be where I am or land where I do. We all have our own journeys that we are on with God, and that's especially the case for this conversation. And finally, my request. My request is, as this feels vulnerable, I want to ask you to do what we just said we will do, and what I know that we want to do as a community, which is to create a safe place for people to tell tell their stories. And I know that you will honor that. And I hope that as we do that, we have a safe place where all of us can share our own stories. So this morning, how about I go first? So my story begins in a small Southern Baptist church on the edge of Dallas. It was a wonderful childhood. This church loved me well, and I was a very serious child. I grew up going to church three times a week, whether I wanted to or not. I grew up having sword drills. Where are my people at? I uh, spent every sermon sitting in the pew playing mash. And we actually created marsh because we wanted to throw a ranch as a possible living situation in the mix. At VBS, we would pledge allegiance to the flag in the sanctuary, and then we'd pledge allegiance to the Bible. I signed a True Love Waits contract when I was 14. I didn't quite know what all of that was, but it was a contract I made between me and God. And I was taught to be aware of all things secular, including especially CDs. That was my childhood. Like any culture, you were taught a lens to see the world, and that lens included words that we used to speak of other people, and that word that I held for the gay community when I grew up, or as we called the homosexuals, was the word abomination. That's the normalized word that I had growing up when I thought about the gay community. And that word formed how I viewed gay men and women. One memory that comes to mind as I've been thinking about this series and this sermon in particular was a memory that came in high school. In high school, we were uh, on a school bus driving to some, uh, some uh, football game, and somehow in the conversation, it turned towards uh, the conversation around the gay community and that kind of thing, and I decided it was time for me to hold court and pontificate what I believed. And I start off by saying, well, I believe the Bible, and the Bible is quite clear, and it's clear what God thinks of the gay community, and you also can clearly see God's judgment against all homosexuals. Why? Because of AIDS. And gay people are dying right next to all the drug-addicted people, and that's proof enough for me. The reason why I remember this moment is because the most quiet, meek girl in my grade was sitting in front of me, and she stood up, spun around, with tears streaming down her face, and she just said two words over and over and over again. Shut up. She screamed it over and over and over again. And the bus went silent. And I've often wondered about my young friend and if she remembers that moment as well. I went to college, and while people were going wild, I actually became more and more zealous in my faith. My life was full of religious certainty. Black and white was my world, my spiritual world. And it's interesting, when I look back at my life and the spaces that formed me, quite often all of them were uh, cultures and environments of privilege and were uh, 
It's primarily a white culture. North Dallas, Texas A&M University, my fraternity, the Christian camp I worked at, all very white spaces that were, usually had doses of affluence and privilege. So I decided to break my lack of diversity by going to grad school at Baylor. <laughs> but seriously, it was in that space when I went to seminary that part of my theological framework started cracking a little bit. And what I mean by cracking, I mean like cracking open, not cracking as in falling apart, because I got closer to the questions I never felt the courage to get to, closer to the questions that oftentimes people who aren't Christian feel really comfortable asking. The other reason why I started cracking was I was going to seminary alongside women who were preparing to be pastors. And when I went into seminary, I thought these women were all planning on being children's pastors, or maybe the next Beth Moore but they were actually feeling a call to pastor churches. And I began to listen to their stories and sense their calling and began to learn and study next to them. And my upbringing, women were not allowed anywhere near the pulpit or next to the role of a pastor. While this was taking place, my relationship with the Bible also began to shift, and I would say shift to a healthier space. I began to see complexities of Scripture. God could have chosen to have golden tablets lower from the heavens, telling us exactly what to believe and what to do. But instead, what God wanted, what God intended, was to have Scripture written from people through their experiences in life and experiences with God. One of the best illustrations I heard in a sermon a long time ago was what I'm, what I'm trying to get at with this view of Scripture was the illustration of M.C. Escher, you might remember this, of two hands drawing one another. Have you guys seen this before? I remember M.C. Escher, off, like when I was in middle school and high school, people would have posters in, uh, in their dorm rooms or in their homes. Uh, so this is a picture of two different hands drawing another. This is a depiction of a paradox. As you look at this picture, you might wonder which hand is drawing the other. In my mind, this is a great picture of what Scripture is and how Scripture came to us. The historic Christian point of, view, point of view and conviction is that God's Word is both a human word and a divine word. It's both a human word and a divine word, writing one another, writing this work of Scripture. There is tension in that. Different parts of the church, different types of churches or communities might highlight one of those different hands, a hand of God writing or a hand of humanity writing. You could see in different churches, whether like, for example, conservative or evangelical churches, the Bible lifts up the hand uh, that is divine. You will hear terms like this is God's holy and perfect word, that the Bible is inerrant, it's timeless, it's flawless. And our role with the Bible is to see it as authority and to submit underneath it. More progressive churches, you will hear the human side more accented, the human nature of Scripture. You will hear those churches talk about how the Bible is nuanced, it's cultural, it's limited, it's suggestive. We are all tempted to erase one of those hands as we think of Scripture. But the classic Christian point of view is that we have to hold this paradox that this is God's word through the human experience. And I'm curious, even for you, which hand are you tempted to erase? 
Well, I believe the Bible is both fully human and fully divine. And as I got more and more in touch with that reality, I began to read the Bible differently. We really didn't believe much in the human hand writing Scripture. It was God's word not to be questioned or judged, just be read and believed. But there's a different way of reading Scripture that can go more deeply. While this theological shifting was taking place while I was in seminary, something else was taking place. My best friend Shane, we had met at working at a Christian camp. Uh, we looked like babies there. We are like, I was like in college. Not like barely in college, I was in college, and I was just a young-looking kid. But while I was in seminary, uh, Shane asked to meet up one night. While at the Baylor campus, we drove uh, to a parking lot. He wanted to go to the roof of the, of the parking lot there on the Baylor campus. And before we got to the rooftop, I could see that Shane's hands were shaking, and he began to cry. Not able to make it all the way to the top, he pulled over, and as he buried his face into his steering wheel, he said, Mark, I need to tell you that I'm gay. Now, I wasn't fully surprised. Shane wasn't assisted by his love of fashion, Broadway, and how he loved to sing Wilson Phillips. But Shane and I, in that moment, we spent hours talking with one another, and Shane retold me his life story, now through a different lens. And so I know some of you are wondering, yes, Shane gave me permission to have tell this this morning. He was excited about that. But a lot of things began to shift that night. One of the things that changed for me is that this was no longer an issue. This was a person whom I love, who I've spent years learning with, growing with. It was a person who was right in front of me, who was carrying in his heart pain, sorrow, shame, hurt, confusion. My relationship with Shane got me proximate. And there's transformative power when we get proximate to others, especially those who've been marginalized, or especially those who are hurting. This is perhaps why Jesus did the sacred switcheroo that he talks about in Matthew, when we get proximate to people who are in pain, people who are hungry, who are isolated, who are in prison, who are naked, Jesus promises to be there. And the crazy thing is the role in which Jesus is there is in the one who has been hurt, the one who's been marginalized. When we refuse to get proximate to people in that experience, we're not only missing out on the reality of the human experience, we're not seeing Jesus face to face. We're missing out on Christ. After seminary, I came to Austin. I spent five years working with college students and youth. Some of you people here, I met you uh, during that moment. Also during that moment, I had the honor to walk alongside many young people who were gay probably around that whole time period, around 20 or so people. They would confine, confide in me um, through tears usually that this is something I struggle with. Now, at that time, I held a gracious, um, non-affirming traditional point of view, and so I would share the same words to those people. I would say this. I would say, you are more than your orientation, that we all have our struggles, Perhaps this is your thorn that you've been dealt, and you need to know that God's grace is sufficient. And I'd also encourage them 
to seek a significant life of celibacy. What was odd for me is um, when I would share that hard word, it didn't feel like a good word. As a pastor, I have the difficult honor of meeting with people as they are going through struggles, as they are making bad decisions, as they are choosing destruction. And part of my job is to give hard words, saying pretty much, you need to repent. Maybe I don't use that word, but that's what I'm calling them to do. And the interesting thing is when I share those hard words, I know and I can even sense that there is this burden being released. There is this sense of like, oh, I know that's what I need to hear. When I would share those hard words with my friends in that moment, speaking truth and grace, it didn't seem like it bore life and freedom. It didn't have the same effect. I could see the sense of weight, this heaviness, this guilt, the sense of I being called into greater isolation. So the second thing I began to notice is after sitting with beloved friends um, who are from all over backgrounds and experiences, men and women of different ages and, and uh, context, this thing remained consistent regardless of all of those people. They knew that they were gay at a young age. They never chose it. If anything, they chose it a thousand times to be taken away after prayer and prayer, after soaking their pillows, would just pleading with God to take it away, but it wasn't taken away. God didn't make them straight. God didn't answer those prayers, and that either led to shame, disbelief, or anger. Oftentimes, these people felt like a fraud and a liar. They couldn't feel like they could go into religious settings without feeling like they were fake. And every single one of them, they thought of killing themselves or they tried to. Every single one of them. And this is emotional for me because this is not an issue. I am picturing people, people's faces with their hands holding a loaded gun or their stomachs full of pills wanting to get out of it. And this is not just a weird coincidence. I'm going to share some stats with us. From 2009 to 2021, being a young person is just getting more and more difficult. The American high school students who say that they feel a persistent feeling of sadness and hopelessness rose from 26% to 44%. Almost half of young people have this persistent feeling of sadness and hopelessness. This is according to a study from the CDC. Of all the different groups that feel this, do you know what group experiences the greatest sense of hopelessness? LGBTQ youth, clocking at 75%. To make matters more stark, nearly half of LGBTQ teens say that they have contemplated suicide during the pandemic. Perhaps you are wondering, like me, what, are, what can we do to flatten that curve? What can we do together? We're trying to figure that out. But one thing we do know is what exacerbates that experience. And that is when LGBTQ teens experience rejection from their families. That is throwing gas on the fire of that experience. And among all the different reasons why uh, uh, gay teens are experiencing rejection, don't we know that religion is one of the most common 
the Family Acceptance Project found a direct correlation between highly rejecting families and the following experiences. LGBT youth who experience rejection are more than three times likely to use illegal drugs, more than six times likely to report high levels of depression, and eight times more likely to attempt suicide at least once. Once Jesus was asked how he can tell if someone was sent from him or not, if someone can be a witness bearer of Jesus or not, and Jesus said this, you can judge a tree by its fruit. A healthy tree breeds healthy fruit. If there's bad fruit, that's coming from a bad tree. If we were to apply that to our relationship with our gay children, this is the sad truth. Our young people who are gay are safer when they are away from Christian homes. It's just bad fruit. And it breaks my heart to say that. As one conservative, and it's not me saying this, as one conservative, traditional-minded, non-affirming theologian, he agreed with me. He agrees with that idea. Preston Sprinkle, he wrote this. He said, if the gospel is not good news for gay people, it's not good news. If it's not good news for all of us, it's just not the gospel. It's not Jesus' gospel. And so that, that theologian is calling Christian communities to do better, whether traditional or affirming, all across the board. As a church, we must do better. My shifting relationship with the Bible and the proximity that I have with gay folks, it began this internal dialogue within me. And I began what I call a decade-long journey in the muddled middle. Has anyone been in the muddled middle before? It's when you don't know what you believe on a thing, and it's not because you haven't studied it, prayed about it, asked about it. You're just stuck there. You might be in the muddled middle right now. I was there for a decade on this conversation. And in that middle space, I studied and I prayed. I decided to delay judgment and get really close to people to listen to them. I listened to pastors. I listened to parents of gay uh, children. I listened to uh, gay folks who were called to celibacy. That's what they felt like they were compelled to do. I listened to married uh, gay friends. I, I met a lot of gay folks who left the church because of it. And I heard so many stories of bad fruit. Meanwhile, I jumped headfirst into Scripture. Because for me, the way I'm wired, the way I'm connected to God, I was not going to be able to part ways with Scripture in this journey. God was going to have to meet me in God's holy word. And so that's what I did. I jumped right into these passages, specifically those talking about homosexuality. Did you know that there are six passages in the Bible that mention homosexuality? Six. I couldn't mention the number of times the Bible mentions the commandment of Sabbath. I'm not going to do that or caring for the poor, or tithing, but here we have six passages. Okay, let's look at an overview of these six passages. Okay, first there's Genesis 19, which is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. I talked about that last week. I think that we should remove that officially from these six passages. That's just my conviction. I think it's talking about something different. Then there's two passages about in Leviticus, the ones that get the word abomination. That's, what, that's where it comes from. There's the one passage in Romans 1 that I think is actually the most robust conversation around sexuality and orientation, around same gender attraction and expression. Um, I would really encourage those who want to study this in depth to look at that passage, but I would encourage you also to look at Romans 2 as you study it to see what perhaps Paul was getting at. 
Uh, and then there are two other passages that seem to be the most straightforward about this conversation. One in 1 Corinthians 6 and one in Timothy 1. We're not going to go through all of these. We're actually creating a cohort experience this summer where we're going to look at Scripture and human sexuality in depth. We don't have time to do that, but Stephanie Ragsdale and I are going to lead that. Just a little plug for you guys. If you want to jump into this, join us. Okay, but those are the six passages. Uh, Back to the M.C. Escher illustration. Okay, in these six passages, we need to acknowledge that these passages were inspired by God, but written from culture and from the perspective of that culture. And one of the hardest things for us to do is discern what is at work here between these two hands. What's going on here? So in particular, I want to look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. I feel like I'm speaking really fast today. Am I? Man, I'm just trying to get this over with. Okay. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Here we go. God's word. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, swindlers uh, will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay. So some people believe the best reading of Scripture is the most straightforward one, the most simple one. Okay, if that's, if that's how we're going to approach it, there we have it. Men who have sex with men, they are out of the kingdom. They're gone as well as the swindlers, as well as those who struggle with idolatry. If you put anything before God, you're out. Though, as, as well as those who are day drinkers, you're gone. Slanderers are gone. Interestingly, there's no mention of lesbians. Y'all are cool. Gay men are out. It's just, I'm just reading the Bible. Just reading the Bible. But I don't think the simple reading of Scripture is always the best. I don't think it's always the best approach. Because I think if we were to dig deeper, we would see something else. Okay? In particular, what's with that phrase, men who have sex with men? What is that speaking of? Okay, let's look at other translations of that same verse. So that, that was from the NIV. NIV. NIV says men who have sex with men. Okay, what about NASB says this, nor the effeminate nor homosexual. New Living Translation, male prostitutes or those who practice homosexuality. English Revised Version, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with men. New Revised Standard Version says male prostitutes or sodomites. Same scripture, same verse, same words, very, very different translations, very different meanings. So are we talking about effeminate men, prostitutes, all homosexuals, homosexuals, or sodomites, whatever that means? Now, you can see that the translators are trying to grasp at what that original text was saying 2,000 years ago. And that hand that draws a hand, that's not only a picture of what we see with those who are writing Scripture, but also those who are trying to translate Scripture. That's also us working in our culture and our context to try to figure out what God's Word is. And what I think is really dangerous is how often, and I'm guilty of this too, how often a significant number of the readers of the Bible forget that there's that middle layer between our reading of Scripture today and the original text. There is that middle space of 
of translating it and interpreting it. I'm actually participating in this hand versus hand right now. I'm trying to share God's word to you right now, and I'm doing my best at discerning that with you. But far too often, Christians, they get their Bible, they open it up and go, there it is, that's God's word. I do believe it's God's word, but we also have to remember and to acknowledge that there is this incredible process by which we received God's word. Like, as we receive this holy word, often we will hear, well, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. But we also need to remember that this scripture that we read is from 2,000 plus years ago. We can believe it full-heartedly, but we need to discern that together. For instance, what actually did Paul write? If we were to get that, that original word, what did Paul write there in 1 Corinthians that they were translating in all these different ways? What is that phrase, men who have sex with men, about? It's actually two different words, malakoi, and we're going to geek out, malakoi and arsenikoitai. Arsenikoitai, sorry, I misread that. Um, the word malakoi literally means soft. That's what that word means. It literally means soft. It's often used to describe a soft fabric. In Matthew eleven eight, we find that. It's also used to describe when someone is lazy or cowardly or without self-control. Another meaning of malakoi is womanly or effeminate. And because of the patriarchal culture of the day, women were seen, I'm, I'm, don't put this on me, I'm just stating what the perception was back then. Because of the culture of that day, women were seen as weak, and easily given over to desires. If being womanly was seen at weak, that it also was deserving of subjugation. Malakoi here could be used to mean uh, to be in the submissive role in a male-to-male sex uh, uh, encounter. This would be used not to describe a mutual relationship, but one marked by power, dominance, and shaming. The second term, arsenikoitai, is I think it's actually really, really interesting because we can't find another uh, instance of this word prior to Paul's writing. Some people, some scholars believe that Paul actually created this word. Paul combined two separate words to make a new composite word, like the word Toyotathon. Like he brought these two, <laughs> shout out to Gerard Carmichael, but he brought these two words and made it into one. And those two words, uh, to literally what, it's, what it makes is this phrase, better of males, to take a male to bed. Scholars and translators are all over the map on how to understand that phrase, but there's many scholars that point to something very specific. It's the ancient prevalence of pederasty. Pederasty was the common cultural practice where married older men would have exploitive sexual relationships with younger boys they would often bed young, soft boys. Some believe this is connected to exploitive relationships. Other people see it's connected to prostitution or slavery. And other, others believe that it's equivalent to sexual hazing. Regardless, it seems like Paul is writing about something very specific. And one question we must wrestle with, the one question I was wrestling with in my muddled middle years, I think is the million-dollar question, is what we find here in this text actually speaking to and should be applied to monogamous sexual expression of mutuality, care that we find of those of the same gender? Should this 
Should this word, should this phrase, should this passage rule out and condemn a lifelong monogamous relationship, which is what we believe to be the Christian standard? The scripture that I had once read as abundantly clear started to be not so clear. Now, others faithfully disagree. Some of, some of you in this room faithfully disagree, and I get, I get it. It seems really dangerous to pick and choose what we take from the Bible, and we say, oh, this is timeless, but this is for a, a different time and day, right? It seems really dangerous to do that. Much like, you know, famously Thomas Jefferson, he literally took a, a pair of scissors to his Bible and removed all the different parts of the Bible that didn't match his sensibilities. And we might say, oh, there we go, we're starting to do that. The reality is, we all do it. We all read parts of the Bible and go, well, that is not true. I'm not going to stone my son for being disrespectful to Jen and me. You know, there's so many different parts of Scripture we go, yeah, yeah, that is not for here and now. We skip, but we just don't cut them out of our Bible. We just skip over them. We memorize other parts of the Bible that we dislike. And we, and we uh, crochet the ones that comfort us. But we, uh, we do this because the Bible is two-handed. It's complex. And because of that, because of our picking and choosing of Scripture, it, we see how often we use and misuse the Bible. Rachel Held Evans wrote a beautiful quote in her book, A, Woman, a Year in Biblical Womanhood. She said this, If you are looking for verses with which to support slavery, you will find them. If you are looking for verses with which to abolish slavery, you will find them. If you're looking for verses with which to oppress women, you will find them. If you're looking for verses with which to liberate and honor women, you will find them. If you are looking for reasons to wage war, you will find them. If you're looking for reasons to promote peace, you will find them. If you're looking for an outdated, irrelevant, ancient text, you will find it. And if you are looking for truth, believe me, you will find it. This is why there are times when the most instructive question to bring to the text is not what does it say, but what am I looking for? That's pointing to how we can use and misuse scriptures so often. And I began to see in this conversation there were Bible-believing, Jesus-loving people who saw this conversation differently. It's not because that one had faith and had the truth and the other side had compassion and grace. It's not like that those who were wanting to be affirming had, okay, they watered down truth and make it, make it palatable, but those who are holding a traditional point of view, oh, they're just condemning and judgmental and hypocritical. Our scripture is a difficult thing for us to follow. And we all should follow it with all boldness and courage. But it takes discernment to figure out what the hands of God are up to in writing this text. Okay, so back to my story. As I was in the muddled middle, God used something to move me, to move me to get me unstuck in that muddled middle space. One day, I was reading Acts chapter 10. In my personal time of study and reflection and devotion, Acts 10 is a story where um, the, one of the leaders of the early church, a man named Peter, was visiting a friend. He decided to pray and to fast. And he went up to his friend's roof and began to pray there. While he was up on the roof, God gave him a vision, a really weird vision for people like us. But it, uh, as he, I think it's part because he was fasting. God gave him this vision of a blanket being unrolled. And on that blanket, was food for him to eat. But the problem was, all the food was unclean. Religiously, as a Jew, he could never eat this 
But then the voice of God said, Peter, eat this. Now, from Leviticus and the church tradition, good Jewish people knew not to do such a thing, and maybe this was a test. And so Peter said in verse 11 of chapter 10, Surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. And God gave him a standing ovation. No. But this is, uh, this is how God responded. God said, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And while Peter was wondering what this meant, some non-Jewish people showed up looking for him because an angel had reached out to them. And the angel said, go find Peter. He has something that you need to hear. And so they showed up there as he was wondering, what is this weird vision about? And uh, they said, Peter, we need you to come to our house to tell us this good news. That was a huge no-no. Good Jewish people don't show up to Gentile people's, non-Jewish people's homes. They don't share meals. They don't have that kind of interactions. And against all customs and the religious rules, Peter decides to go. And the Holy Spirit moves in that house, and this non-Jewish family experiences the gospel, and the Holy Spirit blows through all the boundaries and all the framework and the law and the religious rules to show that the Spirit was up to something different. Also to show in Jesus' kingdom, this community is not going to be second class. They're being invited in. And as I sat with that prayer time, with that passage, I thought about my time on the roof with Shane. I thought about the faces of friends driven to suicide. Friends who felt like they were given ultimatums between intimacy of God with God and intimacy with a life partner. I saw beloved young people told to get back in the closet and to pray the gay away. And lifted from that passage, I heard a voice speak to my soul. And it said to me, don't you dare call evil what I'm making good. And I felt the Holy Spirit invite me through this passage, through God's word, to enter into a new chapter in my journey one of inclusion, one of embracing my gay friends and saying that you are not second-class citizens in God's kingdom. Just so you know, I, again, this is my journey. We're all on our process of discernment. And, you know, I might be wrong in the end. And I've had to make peace with Jesus about that. I've some honest prayers with God but I feel like I have made peace, and I do feel led by God's Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, in this, uh, this posture. And as it comes to our church, we believe that the well of Jesus' grace and mercy belongs to all people, and it belongs to the gay community as much as it does to anyone else. We also believe that we as a church are better equipped to bear witness to Jesus' kingdom with our gay brothers and sisters along with us. Therefore, we're not, going to limit, we're not going to limit church membership or participation or leadership due to someone's sexual orientation. I am grateful for our third-way posture as it provides the space for diversity of faithful interpretation on this subject, as we create this culture of inclusion. And when I say the vine is fully inclusive, I mean that we are fully inclusive. We're not only inclusive of our gay brothers and sisters, but we're also faithfully, uh, we're inclusive of those who are faithfully seeing things differently, but long to create a space to invite all of us 
to, one, uh, to the table. For those who faithfully see differently, yet also have a posture of respect, humility, and compassion. The vine landed on our third way posture a year and a half ago. And since then, I've been so heartened and encouraged because I feel like this has gotten us deeper in a lot of different conversations and subjects. But one of the things that's really heartened me is that we have seen a lot of gay friends join our community, come be a part of this because of our third way posture. And as I've asked my new gay friends why they are here, they say, they have said to me that our third way posture makes me feel safe because I know there's no bait and switching in our community anymore. I know there's room for diversity. I also have asked one of them, why aren't you a part of like a fully affirming church? And they said, the rainbow flag flies over so much of my life, but there are more parts of my personhood than that. And I want to be a part of a church whose vision and culture is more expansive than that one conversation. I've even asked a friend of mine, why they want to be a part of a church like ours, knowing that there might be some people who disagree. And uh, he said, um, my parents won't go to church with me anymore. I'm not allowed. And it means so much to me being a part of a church where people who might, who might not fully understand or agree with everything, but they want to share the table with me. And so this is the expression of family. This is the only expression of family I have when it comes to church. As we live into this, I know that we won't be a church for everyone. There are some who feel like we've watered down truth and we're on the slippery slope to liberalism. There are other people who, uh, more progressive people say, hey, good first step. Let me know when you fully have arrived, when you're fully affirming. And there's some in the, uh, they're in a chapter of their life where, where they actually need fences around their family and their loved ones. All of that's understandable. All of that is understandable. It just seems so clear to me that this is what we have been invited to by Christ. This is part of the witness that we have in this world. I call this our sacred experiment because it is an experiment. I don't see many churches doing this. Why? Our inclusive third-way posture defines the rigidity that dictates so much of our lives. It creates the space to differ on issues while we consciously depend on the Holy Spirit as we engage and get closer to one another. And I believe it forges a unity that goes deeper than same-mindedness. So, concluding this whole series and this really long sermon, I just want to extend an invitation. And that's to come up on the roof with me. Come up on the roof where perhaps God could give us a different vision of what it means to be faithful to him. Come up on the roof so that you can hear other people's stories, stories that they have held in secrecy and pain. Come up on the roof to hear from the spirit who often challenges and blows through the boundaries that we have believed God existed in. And come up on the roof together in all of our differences and all of our divisions to see how the Holy Spirit can make us one, not only for our witness of this world, but for the sake of all of God's children. We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about the Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to the Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.